How you doing, everybody? It's Michael Jenkins here with another episode of By the Book, a sports betting podcast. We're once again bringing you some of our favorite segments from the last few shows. First up, Megan McPeak and I spoke with VEASAN's Tim Murray and then NBC Sports Edge's Corey Parson about some of last season's top NFL team's projected win totals and how they saw them shaking out. Right now, we're bringing in the guy who brings us the action from VEASAN Live, of course, host of the Nightcap on VEASAN Live from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time, at 1TimMurray on Twitter. Tim, great to see you. Let's start, of course, with the defending Super Bowl champions, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, with a total set at 11 and a half. So, are you going over or under, and why based on the schedule? Yeah, this is a team last year that won 11 games and then ultimately, you know, makes its run. Um, you know, what's advantageous for the NFC South is they have the NFC East as one of its crossovers. So you're looking at Dallas to open up the season at Philadelphia, who we expect to be down. Uh, they visit Washington, which should be a tricky one, but Tampa Bay uh, coming off a bye there. And then the Giants on a Monday night. So uh, I think that that is that works out in their advantage uh, for Tampa. And remember, they didn't win the division last year so they're not playing first place teams they're playing you know the chicago bears uh in a crossover they're playing at new orleans um well they play the uh, i mean obviously they play at new orleans in the division there so uh they also get the afc east so you're looking at the bills uh, obviously the patriots so um you know for a team like new england's uh a little bit aging um this one would be probably if I had to play it an under look just because I, I don't know their motivation for the regular season. Yeah. You know, we saw it, you know, last year they got off to a bit of a slow start and then got really rolling. I mean, they, they recognize almost to uh, almost to what LeBron does now. All right. I think we may have lost him for a second. And Tim's frozen. We'll try to get him back we'll here on By the Book, presented by Michelob Ultra. So until we get Tim teed up again, you know, we have talked about this before, and it's interesting that we both picked the over. We like the over, but Tim likes the under, so we've got him back now. We worked out the difficulties. He's back. Tim, go ahead and continue. You said you're a little worried about the motivation with this team. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something to keep an eye on when it comes to the Buccaneers. But that all being said, I heard you guys talking about it to start the show which was the NFC South is where they live. And yeah. you look at a team like Atlanta, could be without Julio Jones. I do think Atlanta is improved this year, but how how improved, especially if Julio Jones is out. You look at Carolina, I think, still think they're years away. And then New Orleans, to me, takes a big step back. So I, I think the division is something that is uh, manageable there for them. Uh, but I, I would either look under or pass. Uh, certainly not one of my favorite totals on the board. Tim, we've got another one out of the AFC, the Kansas City Chiefs. They sit at uh, 12 with the over-under. Where are you thinking when you look at their strength of schedule as well to obviously that loss in the playoffs and, and the Super Bowl and the way it was handled? Do you think that they have that motivation that you know what you're going to get from them this season? Yeah, usually, Megan, it's historically the uh, it's a fade of the, the runner-up in the Super Bowl to, uh, you know, they have a drop-off the following year. Uh, but what I look at with Kansas City, obviously they have Patrick Mahomes coming back. And to me, in the immediate, I think they had a, an unbelievable offseason. Now, we'll see ultimately if they pay too much money to Orlando Brown at left tackle. But I think the trade to get Orlando Brown from the Ravens to solidify your left side, you bring in Joe Thune, 
You draft Creed Humphrey out of Oklahoma in the second round. You get Kyle Long out of retirement. They have reworked that offensive line, which led to Patrick Mahomes running for his life. Oh, by the way, uh, they won 14 games last year, too. So I do think that it is just a matter of things keep rolling for the uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, I liked what they were able to do in the draft. I think Nick Bolton, the, the uh, linebacker um, out of Missouri coming in. So you're sitting at 12. Uh, even and that's something to keep an eye on because that hook could could come into place. But do we all do we see Kansas City losing six games this year? That's pretty hard to imagine. Yeah, uh, I think the Chargers are improved. Um, they're a team that's impressive. They could be in the Julio Jones sweepstakes. Obviously, Denver, you look at the possibility of them getting Aaron Rodgers. But you know, for the Kansas City Chiefs, they are so talented and to just completely reworked the offensive line like they did was uh, was really impressive to do and similar to what we saw with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers they play the NFC East as their NFC opponent and I think that is something that is advantageous for them so uh, I, I like I like the over here on Kansas City Andy Reid if you look at it, what he's done since he's got the Kansas City I think he's hit the over almost every single year so I do think Kansas City is chomping at the bit, even though they've been to the Super Bowl two straight years and, and lost last year. I don't I don't expect a, a drop-off. I think they keep rolling. And if we're sitting at 12 flat, I think it's an overplay. We're talking with Tim Murray from VSIN Live out in Las Vegas on Twitter at 1TimMurray. Tim, we got the Bills who are interesting at 10 and a half here. And, and you know, their bugaboo is going to be trying to get past Kansas City. You know, they have the talent there and they're so very close, but they've got to get it over the hump. Do they go over the win total here, though? Um, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would probably lean towards the yes. Um, but I do think that the AFC East is is vastly improved. And you look at Miami; they're a team that uh, I would take maybe a flyer at you know plus three fifty or so to win the AFC East. Uh, New England did something they've never done before, which was uh, go crazy in free agency spending money. Um, so that's something you know, obviously uh, that is that is unique. What do they do at the quarterback position? But you know, ultimately for the Buffalo Bills guys, this is a very talented team and one that should rival uh, the Kansas City Chiefs to come out of the AFC and be the representative for them in the Super Bowl. So I'm almost a little surprised it's not around 11 and a half or so. So at 10 and a half, you know, a team to go 11 and six like the Buffalo Bills. Um, I think there's some manageable parts of their schedule there. So, yeah, I would, I would once again, I, I don't want to be the guy who's just firing on overs, but uh, I would have to look towards the over again on the Buffalo Bills because I, I just don't see much of a drop-off coming from the Bills. And they got a couple edge rushers. Maybe that helps them, you know, late in the first round and, and in the second round. So those were that's the way they went to try to help out that defense a little bit too. Tim, quick question, sort of related. I saw – Josh Allen at 13 to one to win MVP. Do you think there's value there on a guy who maybe could take another step this season? Yeah, I think I, I don't think it's horrible. I mean, I think we saw last year that he uh, really. I, I was I've been down on on Josh Allen pretty much since he was drafted out of Wyoming. I, I didn't believe you know it was all about arm strength and and what he can be, and he's proven a lot of critics like myself wrong. He was tremendous last year. The accuracy was up. Uh, the acquisition of Stefan Diggs was was massive uh, for him. So I, I don't see why he has a downtick this year. So 
yeah, 13 to one in that range. I, I certainly wouldn't be opposed to putting a, a flyer on a guy like Josh Allen for a team that is, you know, right there among the Super Bowl favorites. Um, you know, the Super Bowl favorite is the Kansas City Chiefs. They have to get by them. But uh, if they have a big regular season, I don't see why Josh Allen wouldn't be in the discussion for MVP. So, yeah, if you're getting 13 to one or so, Jenks, certainly worth a flyer. Tim, before we let you go, we want to get your thoughts on, on the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and where you think, because we didn't have the numbers with their over-under mm -hmm. right now, it hasn't been posted. Uh, when you look at the Packers, with or without Aaron Rodgers, where do you think they go? Yeah, that's, I mean, he's worth, goodness, uh, four or five wins. I mean, I don't know what the analytics would say, but, you know, to me, it's a massive drop-off because we just don't know what Jordan Love is. You know, you have to remember, Jordan Love didn't beat out Tim Boyle last year for the backup job <laughs> in Green Bay. Jordan Love didn't suit up for one game last year for the Green Bay Packers. And I'm not saying he's a bust or anything like that, but if he's the guy, man, it's it, it's got to make you worried. And I know they went out, they got Blake Bortles and Kirk Benkirk, but come on. I mean, it, if, if, they, if they don't have Aaron Rodgers, it's – it's a it's a massive drop off. I, I go back and forth. I feel like it's a, a daily change of my mind when it comes to Aaron Rodgers. Will he or won't he play? You know, he does his thing this week on on ESPN talking about, you know, it's it's nothing against Jordan. I love the coaching staff. It's the front office. Uh, and I saw, you know, a lot of people tend to agree with with uh, with Aaron Rodgers there. And there's so many differing opinions. But you know, right now, as of today, subject to change, guys, I would say Aaron Rodgers doesn't play week one for the Packers, whether it be on another team or he's sitting out. I could see that being a situation. So, you know, maybe it's a spot where he waits three or four weeks and then he gets going. I, I don't know. I mean, there, there clearly needs to be some mending of this relationship, and I don't know if it's an unfixable situation, uh, but I wouldn't be betting on the Packers right now. Uh, unless you got a crazy number. I mean, that's the thing to keep an eye out, though, guys, is how do these odds keep getting adjusted? If you if you get an Aaron Rodgers at a crazy inflated number to win MVP or you get the Packers at a inflated number to win uh, the NFC, you know, maybe it is worth a flyer hedging your bets that, OK, maybe he comes back. But if it's normal, as we showed the odds for the NFC North at minus 125, no thanks on the Green Bay Packers. Now, if I'm getting a plus price at them, or you know, plus 12 or 14 to one to win the NFC, then maybe it's just worth a flyer just in case. But right now, um, I, I wouldn't be firing on much of anything on the Packers. He is host of the Nightcap on VSIN Live, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time. I always say it, we're staying up for Tim Murray on Twitter at one Tim Murray, my man. Tim, great stuff as always, my friend. We appreciate it. All right, guys, talk to you soon. We then continue to talk football, this time about next season's college futures with NBC Sports Edge's Eric Froton. Follow him on Twitter at CF Froton. So, Eric, first of all, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. And we were talking about the college football futures, which came out pretty recently. And no surprise, Alabama is sitting there at the top as a defending national champion. But is there any value on Bama at this point? Well, Michael, I love hearing you get just as excited as I get about talking about college football. Yeah. So even though we're in the offseason, I, I love to hear that. <laughs> Let me just start off, first of all. Uh, as far as with Bama, you know, plus 300 is what we currently have them over William Hill. Uh, it, it's tough to really want to tie up too much of your bankroll in a plus 300 
uh, you know, wager when, you know, the way I look at these sort of future bets is I want to take shots a little further down the line to try to accrue value so that when it comes down to, uh, you know, the final four and it's playoff time, can I get one of those other, you know, uh, you know, down the board values and then try to, you know, hedge that with an Alabama or a Clemson or something along those lines. Should Alabama be number one? Absolutely. You know, given the fact they are turning over their roster pretty quick, you know, significantly, especially on offense, losing Mac Jones, losing Waddle, losing Devontae Smith, losing Leatherwood, uh, losing Dante Harris. It, it's a, you know, an avalanche, but this team just reloads. It has had the greatest re, uh, recruiting class in the history of college football this past season. So, uh, I'm not worried about Alabama in terms of their ability to be productive and be in the national title race. So you mentioned that you might look down the board at another team that could potentially get into that final four uh, when you think of the national championship uh, tournament and the way that they have that structured now. I asked Jenks this earlier, and I want to ask you too, is, is there any value in potentially looking at maybe the Sooners or the Bulldogs? Uh, actually, I, I do like... Uh, Oklahoma in particular with Georgia the problem you're going to have with them is right off the bat week one you know they're playing Clemson so one of those two teams is going to is going to take a, a hit right out of the gate and then you're kind of you know coming from behind where you don't want to drop that second game especially an SEC player that's going to knock you out of you know a, a contention so for that reason schedule wise I kind of like Oklahoma a little bit um, simply because uh, they got Spencer Rattler, you know, the second half of the year, Oklahoma was changing over, uh, you know, last season, going through obviously the pandemic, dealing with, uh, you know, losing Jalen Hurts and the, you know, previously Baker Mayfield. So you're breaking in a brand new QB with Rattler. So th what you saw from him in the first half of the season was not what you saw from the second half. So much more productive. Uh, Oklahoma was really coming on towards the end of the season. I think there could have been, you know, made a little bit of noise if they had gotten selected, but they didn't. Thing what I like about him is, you know, at 800 plus 800, it's pretty good odds. You're getting a shot from the Big 12, which they are the best team. The other hedge I kind of like is, as you put the graphic up, Iowa State is plus 3,000. Okay, so you got plus 800 in Oklahoma, you got plus 3,000 in Iowa State. I don't see any other team being remotely competitive in that Big 12 conference. So we have the ability of maybe you take Oklahoma plus 800, you also throw a, a nominal uh, sort of wager on Iowa State, one of those two teams is coming out of the Big 12. And since the Pac-12 is essentially irrelevant nowadays, unfortunately, for better or for worse, they, they're not even a Power 5 conference, it seems like, anymore. You're going to get one of those two teams going to the dance. And once you get that ticket to the dance, well, you can you can, you know, make some other plays off of that if you want to go with uh, Ohio State. You know, uh, you can take a couple different shots to maximize that sort of a, a long shot bet. So um, I kind of like, uh, you know, as we discussed, Oklahoma. I like Iowa State. And the one SEC team I think you got great odds on is Texas A&M. They were plus 3,000 as well. Uh, that's a, I mean, a pretty fully formed team with the exception of replacing their quarterback. But they do have a four-star prospect in Haynes King, who looks like he's going to step in pretty efficiently yep. for Kellen Mond. So uh, I like the value there on Texas A&M. We're talking with Eric Froton, the senior college football analyst from NBC Sports Edge. Again, follow him on Twitter at CFFroton. Eric, when you look at, you mentioned Spencer Rattler, and certainly when you think about Heisman odds, I mean, he's going to be right up there. I believe he's the favorite right now. And we see DJ Uyunglele from Clemson and, and Bryce Young, JT Daniels at Georgia. 
do you do you have a bet here, or are you thinking about putting some money down? You actually made a good point earlier, which you know, because of the odds sitting where they are, you could actually hedge a little too. Yeah, sure. I mean, and that's kind of what I, I like to try to do this far ahead of time. But as again, where you don't want to tie up too much of your bankroll in something that isn't going to pay out at all, you know, eight months down the line. So the, there's always that to really factor in. Um, in terms of down the board here, uh, I really like Matt Corral at plus 3,000. Uh, you know, you're talking about a guy who is considered to be a, a first-round quarterback as we're looking ahead to 2022. He has that kind of talent. He's in a huge offense with Lane Kiffin came to town, really opened things up with the spread. Uh, he doesn't have Elijah Moore anymore, but Braylon Sanders is back. Dante Drummond caught a touchdown each of the last seven games last season. So I, I feel great about what he's got to work with in terms of skill positions. Um, so when you look at a team that's going to score big points like that, I, I like the fact that he has the talent. He's in a place that's going to score uh, at plus 3,000. You know, it's great odds. Uh, another guy I, I really like is, gosh, um, Howell, you know, for Sam Howell for UNC, plus 1,500 odds. That's excellent for a guy, again, first-round caliber quarterback. There's talk of either Rattler or Howell being the number one uh, QB selected and possibly number one overall pick selected in next year's draft. Gosh, we, where you have the entire line coming back, all five offensive linemen. He loses skill position guys, Daz Newsome, um, uh, uh, Diami Brown, as well as the two superstar running backs, Michael Carter and Javante Williams. But, uh, you know, he's got Josh Downs, who's an excellent slot receiver. He's going to come right in and take over. He's a four-star caliber recruit. Shopper Brown on the outside looks good as well. And he's got, uh, they transferred in Ty Chandler from Tennessee to take over the running load. So I feel really good about where they're picking up from the left off. You've got an absolute Heisman caliber arm with Sam Howell at plus 1500 all the way down there. Take a shot. And then if he gets an invite to, uh, you know, to New York, again, you know, at 1500, well, you can go and play that off of whoever the, maybe the perceived favorite is as the season starts and you kind of, you know, read the tea leaves. Well, we want to take a look at the Michelob Ultra stats for Spencer Rattler since you were talking about him. And, and, you know, obviously this guy, as a freshman last year, grew and had a fantastic year. But I wanted to ask you, when you look at players like Rattler, how do you separate the player from the system? Because we know if you play in that Lincoln-Riley system, you're going to put up numbers. But at the same time, we know Rattler certainly has the talent. Sure, you're definitely going to put up numbers. Uh but if you look at the the two players that we're dealing with here uh, that I mentioned, Baker Mayfield, obviously he, you know, with a, a little bit of a learning curve in year one, obviously the Browns are going to be a factor this year. They had a nice draft. Um, all the pieces are in place. So I, I feel like he's been a success story. Obviously Jalen Hurts right away, uh, only a second round pick, you know, he's a little further down the trough than Baker Mayfield, but uh, Jalen Hurts, they've, he's already been given the keys to the Philadelphia Eagles offense. So, you know, it's translating pretty well in that sense. Uh, when it comes to Rattler, he isn't as mobile as Jalen Hurts or as you know, as good a scrambler as Mayfield is out of structure. What he does have is he's got a better arm than those two guys. He's got a cannon. And, and you saw the big-time throws coming out from him as the season went on, as he got more confident. Um, you know, he's, he developed a report with Marvin Mims, who was a true freshman last year, who was frankly the, the – the uh, number one all-time receiver in the history of America uh, had the biggest single-season record uh, in terms of receiving yards his senior year. So those three really got along pretty well. Uh, they returned Jaden Hazelwood, who was the former number one overall wide receiver two years ago. He was injured. So with um, 
with Rattle, you see the windows that he, he's fitting those throws into. You see how how well he gets the ball, drives the ball down the field, and uh, and throws people open. And you can see his arm is there. He's a little on the small side. You know, he does need to kind of make get a little thicker in terms of his brain in order to absorb the punishment. But um, his arm talent is undeniable there. And I think that's really something that's going to separate him in the scout's eyes. So, Eric, if you don't mind, we wanted to ask you a, a about a couple of the games starting with week one um, when you look at this college football season as we, you know, look ahead to it. Obviously, all eyes are going to be on Alabama and that Miami game, but what do you expect from it, you know, some, as we see some of the notable games from this one, specifically just looking at that Miami-Alabama game, as I mentioned? Yeah, well, I mean, this is going to be a big test for Miami. Uh, you know, Manny Diaz, their head coach, the defensive guy, what I found really interesting when I was digging in the numbers a little bit is Miami's defense, 78% uh, of their production is returning at 64th in the nation, which is right about average. Uh, but when you look at their defensive metrics, uh, yards per play, they average 5.9 yards per play allowed. That was 69th in the country. Uh, and as far as explosiveness per play, they were 75th. You know, those aren't the numbers you want to see from, this is a you know the vaunted uh, Miami Hurricanes defense, great coach they're really recruiting well they, i believe they were 11th uh in 2021 in terms of the recruiting class for strength uh that's a real problem seeing that they're allowing a lot of explosive plays they're not very efficient and they don't have they're losing jalen phillips you know who is who was a monster last season uh and quincy roche as well so the fact that you're, you're losing your two most prominent uh pass rushers as well as the fact that you're dealing with Alabama, which in terms of their metrics, 4.4 points per drive, best in the country. Uh, number one in success rate efficiency, number one in explosiveness per play. And even though they are turning over uh, some of the, the best skill position players, obviously in the country, Bryce Young is the number one quarterback in 2020 coming in to take over. He's groomed and he's ready to go. Looks great in the spring game. You have John Mechie, who is the number three wide receiver, who will take over for Devontae Smith. He looks good. I don't know if he's going to be quite Waddle, Judy, um, you know, Devontae level of receiving acumen, but he's going to handle some of that business. And they got a whole new crop coming in behind them. Ajay Hall was phenomenal in the spring game. Made four excellent catches along the sidelines, down the field, everything. Uh, Javon Baker, you just transferred in Jamison Williams from Ohio State. So I think the hardest issue they're going to have is not so much the talent that's currently in the room because they're they're loaded. It's just figuring out what the combination of pieces is going to be for Alabama. I think they're going to give Miami hell, and I don't I don't think Miami's going to be able to cover that 16 and a half point spread, even though it's a pretty big number. The other big game that week is Georgia and Clemson, and it, it feels like to me this is a bigger deal for Georgia because, you know, Kirby Smart's been there. We know the expectations, and they have that gauntlet in the SEC. So if they want to make a run, they, they need this win. Is that wrong? Oh, I, I think you're pretty right about that, and we even touched on it a little bit earlier, where this is such an important game for Georgia. You get dealt a strike in the SEC before SEC conference play even starts, that's bad news. You're yeah. starting, I mean, it's going to be hard to come back from and to be able to make the, see a, the college football playoff. And that's that's the name of the game right now for Georgia. You know, they've done everything else. You know, they, they've got a pretty good hold on the East, judging from what they have coming back compared to what Florida lost last year, even though Emory Jones, I really think, would be an excellent quarterback. 
Um, but yeah, Georgia needs this. Georgia needs it bad. Clemson can go and just run the table with no Notre Dame in the ACC this year. They can pick up the pieces, run the table, and they're still in. But gosh, Georgia has to be perfect from there on out. It would really be really be a tough blow if they were to lose this game. He is a senior college football analyst from NBC Sports Edge, Eric Froton. Eric, great stuff, man, and, and love talking college football with you. Already got the juices flowing. I'm excited. Myself as well, Michael. Look forward to talking to you in the future. Finally, we talked some tennis with Kale Hammond from Tennis Channel, who shared his thoughts about who could and should win the upcoming French Open. Well, you know one thing, you know, as much as we bet on this show and we bet on just about everything, one thing I'm still getting into is betting on tennis. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily huge in the U.S., but it's popular the world over, and it's gaining some traction here as sports betting proliferates across the country. So, with the French Open about to get underway, we bring in Kale Hammond, betting and fantasy analyst from Tennis Channel. Follow him on Twitter at Kale underscore Hammond. So, Kale... I love the sport of tennis, and I, of course, appreciate majors like a lot of people do, but if you're just getting, if you're dipping your toe into the sports betting world when it comes to tennis, what would you say about the sport that makes it unique and, and maybe exciting compared to other sports you could bet on? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think tennis is the best sport in the world to bet on, and I mainly because of the sheer amount of volume of matches that you have to bet on. So every week there's multiple tournaments across the globe, and the way it's set up is they have like 32-person draws. So it's 16 matches each tournament every Monday, and the tournament you know thins out as you go on. But it's just the amount of options that you have, first and foremost, is why I think it's one of the best ones to bet on. So, Kale, can you explain to us why it is that people just – especially in the U.S., they just aren't betting on tennis? Because I know it's something, you know, that's kind of something that you want to get across to, to, to folks who might be new to tennis betting or are tuning in to find out more about why they are not betting on tennis the way they should be. Yeah, I really don't have an answer to that. You know, I mean, tennis is, you know, it's a country club sport. It's not that popular mainstream, but, um, yeah, I don't have a good answer, but I'm, I'm helping. My mission is to grow that and to change it because it really is a fascinating sport to bet on, especially with the one-on-one -on -one matchups that you have different game styles, different personalities. There's just so many cool things uh, about it, but I, I really can't tell you why it's not bet on more, but I think, you know, we're going to see it, you know, grow in popularity over time. We're talking to Kale Hammond for, from Tennis Channel, I should say, fantasy analyst and also a sports better. So let's talk about the actual French Open, which is just now starting to get underway. And we know the story will once again be Rafa Nadal, who's going for his 14th title on the clay there at Roland Garros, which is hard to believe and, and can also break that tie for grand slams with Roger Federer. I mean, is he going to do this again? I, I, I feel He's going to be the favorite, and he's 34 years old. But you know how he is more than I do. Once he gets on that clay, he is just, he's magnetic and he's pretty special. Once he, once he steps foot on, on the clay at the French Open, he's a completely different, different person. Yeah. It's, I've never seen anything like it. I would ask you if you've ever seen anything like it. You know, if, he's a 102 career record at the French Open, 13 titles. I would ask you if you've ever seen anything like that in all of sports. No. I think it's one of the... No, I mean, in, in any sport ever, I don't think there's been anyone that's as dominant as he is at this particular tournament. So, yeah, absolutely, I think he's going to win again. I mean, this is my whole life. You know, I just, the only memories I have of the French Open is just Nadal lifting the trophy almost every single year. And, yeah, minus 120, you're showing that, is a great number. He was minus 175, but he has a really tough draw. Djokovic is in his half, and so is Federer. So the bottom half of the draw is wide open. Top half of the draw is stacked. 
And that's why we saw him go from 175 to 120, which is, I think, a gift because it really doesn't matter how hard his draw is. He's, he's had hard draws before. It never seems to matter. So I, I, I also wanted to ask just simply about the clay because, again, people might be new to betting on tennis or even new to the sport, but they want to get into it. What is it about the clay surface that adds – you know, if you will, an extra threat to players, but seems that Nadal has figured out how to utilize it to his advantage? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so clay, it's a, you know, it's a loose surface. They play on crushed brick. And so what players do with the ball, everyone has different game styles, but Nadal hits with more spin than anyone, more spin on his forehand than anyone in the world. And so what happens when that ball's rotating, it hits that surface. And when it has top spin on it, it grabs the clay and it shoots up and it's really hard to handle. So if someone hits it flat, it's going to hit and it's going to slide and dig into the clay and it's going to sit up. So the more spin you can produce on clay, the heavier your shot is, the tougher it is to handle. And you know, it's the better you are. You see players who hit the ball heavy with a ton of spin. They have tons of success on clay. No one hits with more spin than Rafa on his forehand. And that's probably the biggest reason. And then aside from just his mentality, he's just, one of the greatest competitors in sports history. Now, certainly when, when you talk about the big names in tennis, Joker is a guy that's always in the conversation. Why is it that he has such a hard time on this surface? He doesn't have a hard time on this surface. He's, he's a great, probably the second, second best clay court player in the world, but it just doesn't matter because Nadal is so much better <laughs> right. than everyone else on this particular surface. You know, he, he would probably have six French Opens if Nadal wasn't there. And same with Federer, too. It's just, he just takes them all. He's just very, very greedy. But, yeah, you know, he, he, they also grow up, and it all grows up. If you grow up playing on clay, it's almost a different sport at, compared to, like, hard court or grass court tennis. You have to be able to build the point. You have to be strong physically. You have to have phenomenal endurance, and he has all those things. And I grew up playing on fast hard courts, you know, a lot of indoor courts, and I, play, I hated playing on clay just because the points are so long. You can't finish the point with the winner like you can, you know, on other surfaces. It's tough. Interesting. So the interesting thing that you, you mentioned with the draw that happened uh, yesterday, and you mentioned Federer, Nadal, and, and Jokic all being on the same side of the draw. Nadal sit, sitting at uh, third, he would meet Djokovic in the semis, does that pose any sort of threat to him getting that elusive clay title and kind of getting himself in a position where he can break that tie with Federer? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I'm sure Nadal would rather play him in the finals because he's not going to lose in the French Open final. He just doesn't do that. But he has lost before the French Open final a couple times before. And so that, I think, is big for Djokovic getting him in the semifinals instead of the final because Nadal's not losing on Sunday. And, yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, the way they did the draw, they do it by ranking, and Nadal's number three in the world, so he's the third seed. They don't necessarily seed by, you know, past history at the tournament, which I think they should. I don't think it's right to have Rafa Nadal as the third seed at a tournament, but that's the way they do it, and it's tough for everyone in that section. And the bottom section is wide, wide open. Or maybe this is a bad question because I, Rafa's so dominant, it's hard to talk about anyone outside of him when it comes to this tournament. But is there someone besides... Federer, who, we always, who was always in the mix, or, or Joker, that, that maybe, you know, if things fall right, could maybe disrupt Rafa here? You know, the, the, the oddsmaker's second favorite, Stefano Tsitsipas, is 
he has a great draw, and he's been phenomenal on clay. He's been the second best clay court player this season, and he definitely poses the biggest threat. He's six foot five, freak athlete, hits the ball huge, um, covers the court incredibly well. So yeah, I think he definitely poses the biggest threat. There's some other guys out there. A guy from Norway named Casper Rude is okay. incredible on clay. He's a young guy. But um, you know, no, it's 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 a it's a one horse race, um, you know, unless something crazy happens. <laughs> we wanna also shift to the women's side because that's something that a lot of people have their eye on. We we know what to expect when you think of a Serena or a Naomi, but they're not the defending champs coming into this tournament. What can you tell us about the defending champion? Is is it pronounced Suyak? Not now that I'm saying it correct, or am I incorrect on that one? It's it's, it's Fiatek, and there's Sviatek. multiple okay. pronunciations, but she's you know she says it's Fiatek uh, for Americans, but it's, in Polish it sounds a lot different. And she is phenomenal too. Like I said, like I talked about clay court tennis being almost a different sport to like indoor hardcore tennis in her entire professional career, including when she's 15 years old, playing pro tournaments, playing up against people who are way better than she is on clay in her entire professional career. Her record is 70 and 12. Wow. Which is insane. When you think about it like that, when she's 16, 17, she only loses a couple times on clay and you know, her run at the French open last year was one of the most dominant, runs in history she didn't lose i think more than five or six games in an entire match so really unprecedented run from a teenager and it makes sense she's odd maker's favorite she was plus 600 before but then she won rome the uh, lead up clay court tournament and that really they saw her when she won a o and o in the final 6060 double bagel in the final so i think the odds makers saw that performance and they're just like all right she's by far the favorite now You've got Ashley Barty, you see it four to one, and she's the number one player in the world. You certainly know that. But the difference here is, is the surface, right? So it, how do you assess her chances when it's maybe not her best surface, but certainly she has the game to compete with anyone? Um, it doesn't, for Barty, it doesn't matter what surface she's playing on. She's just, she's just, she's the best athlete on the WTA Tour. Just pure hand-eye coordination, raw natural athleticism. She's by far um, the best right now. She is just a total freak athlete. She didn't play tennis for a while because of the pandemic. And she entered in a, you know, like a, a golf tournament at a country club in Australia and she won the golf tournament. And she, I don't know if you know this, but she quit to play cricket. Really? You know, a couple of years into her career. Yeah. She, she felt a lot of pressure and she didn't like it. And she wanted to go play a team sport. So she turned pro in cricket and was a professional cricketer. So she's just a freak. She's amazing. And she could totally win this tournament. She has a better draw than Sviatek does. And she's absolutely the, she deserves to be the second favorite, maybe the first favorite because she won this tournament in 2019 as well. It's crazy to think what her shift to cricket did for her hand-eye coordination that was already really good, obviously, yeah. which has now clearly probably assisted and improved it even more than it was. But when you look at Naomi Osaka, ranked second in the world, Clay seems to give her some issues, uh, give her some problems. What are you expecting from her in this tournament? Do you think that maybe she can improve her chances on clay when it comes to the French Open this season? You never want to count Naomi Osaka out. Um, you know, on hard court, she's the best player in the world. 
but like Clay's different and you know she is so powerful in the way she moves but on Clay you really need to move you need to be a little lighter on your feet you need to slide and if you if your sliding ability isn't amazing you're going to struggle on clay just because you, you need to be able to hit the ball on the run while you're sliding on the clay. And she doesn't like to do that. And so I don't, I'm not expecting much from Naomi Osaka this tournament. And it's mental too. Like you either, you either like clay or you don't. And she's, you know, she said multiple times, she doesn't particularly enjoy playing on the clay. Like the world number two, Daniel Medvedev on the men's side, he hates clay. He has no chance to win this French open and he knows it, but he's the second best player in the world but he doesn't even believe he has a chance to win the tournament. It's just Clay is a different different beast. He says the sliding, and the first thing I immediately think of is that infamous moment when Serena slides and has that one. I, I think it was a forehand or a backhand, but it's that, and she does the splits. Like, that's immediately what I'm picturing. Am I, am I correct yeah. in thinking that's what you mean? Yeah, I mean, you, if you just watch a little bit, you'll see when they're on the run, they, 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 will, they will be sliding, you know, with both feet on the clay, and then they'll explode and hit the ball. It's really, really pretty to watch when someone does it well. Well, you mentioned Serena, and I mean, look, she's certainly not in her prime, but she's still Serena. Is there any chance whatsoever, I mean, she's 39 years old, you know, arguably the greatest tennis player of all time, and, and, and trying to break that, that record for Grand Slam titles with Margaret Court. Does she have a, a puncher's chance here because of, of how talented she is? Yeah, you know, you never, you can't ever count out Serena, but, but yeah, on clay, it's just so much more physical than the yeah. other surfaces. The matches are longer, the points are longer, and you know, she's getting up there. And so, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say she has, a, she has, I wouldn't say she has a great chance to win the tournament. I think, uh, like Federer, her best chance to win the next major is going to be at Wimbledon on the grass, where you can really serve your way through a match. Um, aces are huge for her because Serena's serve is the best shot in tennis. It's the most dominant shot in tennis history, men or women. Serena has the best serve ever, period. And that'll help her out on grass, but on clay, it's tough to, like you said, it's tough to hit an ace on clay. And so, you know, her she's not gonna be able to serve her way to the title. Um, so it's gonna be tough for her. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet any money on Serena. So you mentioned, Kale, her, her best chance to get that elusive 24th title is to um, do it potentially at Wimbledon. Do you yep. think that she gets it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, think, I think she gets it. She's just you can't, you don't, you definitely, you don't win money by betting against greatness. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. So, so I always like to bet on greatness. Uh, that's one of my little mottos. So, so definitely don't, don't, don't count her out. She, I think she will win another Wimbledon. He is the betting and fantasy analyst from Tennis Channel, also on Twitter at Kale underscore Hammond. That's our good friend, Kale Hammond. Kale, great stuff on the tennis, and, you know, I always love when we have guests on that sort of teach me things, uh, whether it's just about the sport in general or just how to bet a certain sport. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and I hope I could help you. I'm going to look into betting more tennis, that is for sure. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Michael Jenkins. Thanks for listening.